0: Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months we're going to work our way around the body head to toe, exploring different body parts and organs and their history in a cultural, medical, social sense. We're going to hear from a historian or curator about their work studying these body parts and their history. And we'll finish up each episode by exploring some of the recipes that were developed in history to treat that part of the body. So welcome to Head to Toe as we move around the body. My name is Daisy Cunningham and I am the college's heritage manager and librarian. And
1: my name's Olivia Howard and I'm a volunteer with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Heritage.
0: And today we've made it as far as the liver. When we're talking about the liver, there's one thing that we can't really get away from, which is discussion about Prometheus. Any sort of liver specialist, odds are if they're giving a talk, there's going to be one PowerPoint slide that's about Prometheus. You cannot you cannot get away from the significance of Prometheus. So just to kind of recap, in Greek mythology, the gods punished Prometheus for revealing fire to humans by chaining him to a rock where an eagle would peck out his liver and the liver would regenerate. So it would be this never-ending cycle. And the reason why a lot of liver specialists mention it is because of the idea that, well, in reality, the liver regenerates. And it can do this much more than any other organ in the body. Um, There's various different statistics I've seen, but it's sort of 50%, 70% of the liver can be removed and it will regenerate. And so it's this sort of fascinating idea that, because it's part of Greek mythology, did they know?
1: Mm. So, Olivia, did they know? I'm not convinced. It's a nice theory. But I have no idea how they would know.
0: Yeah, it does seem unlikely, even later, even into the 1600s and 1700s, the liver was incredibly difficult to study because it has so many blood vessels that even just sort of poking it or cutting it could cause an enormous amount of blood loss. So in comparison to other organs, it was particularly difficult to study in, in a living, regenerating sort of sense, as opposed to kind of in a, in a corpse.
1: I mean, there was definitely um, ancient ideas about the anatomy of the liver because I was reading about ancient priests who would be sacrificing animals. The liver was how they divinated the future, and they recognised that no two livers looked the same. And because the prediction of the future was based on specific findings on the liver surface, they developed clay models of sheep livers that were used to instruct aspiring priests. There's a, a few examples of ancient Mesopotamian clay liver models at the British Museum that date back to... 2000 BCE
0: I've always wondered and I realized that you know there, there is a specialty where people study this but sometimes when you see these ancient organs you know in these sort of votives, they all just look like blobs I'm like how did they know mm. that that blob was a kidney and that blob was a liver but this is why this is not my specialty and other people <laughs> who are much better <laughs> study these things I'm like it's a blob
1: Galen gave the liver the central role in the function of the body, and he thought that it took food from the gut and turned it into blood. He also thought that as part of that, the liver surrounded the stomach in order to warm it up and potentially warm the food to turn it into
0: blood. Interesting. There's a lot going on there. And Plato apparently thought that the liver was the seat of negative emotions, your anger, your jealousy, your greed. And apparently that's where the term lily-livered comes from, meaning coward. Um, And also because a lot of early medicine is very kind of like for like, so you see this in bloodletting where they're like, oh, you've got a sore leg, you've got to be bled from the leg. So if people had sort of pains that were in the rough region of where the liver was, obviously it's quite difficult to diagnose liver complaints, but that kind of area, then they would be eating a lot of liver as well. So there's a lot of liver being eaten as a way of treating the liver. Scotland particularly is associated with uh, liver and other organs being eaten in the form of haggis. We are in Scotland, when we are recording this, we cannot not talk about haggis. So some form of offal has been eaten in in many countries since ancient times. But the first recorded example of the word haggis was used in England in the 1400s. Now, the first time it was written down isn't necessarily the first time it was used. I like to think that just because it was first written down in a text in the 1400s in England, it's not an English word, but we don't know. The actual haggis itself, the kind of foodstuff, could have come from Rome, could have come from Scandinavia. It, it probably has a, a very old history. But haggis, as what it is, is known as today, and we are recording Two Days After Burns Night, where haggis is, of course, a pretty major centrepiece, is really helped in its popularity by the Robert Burns poem Addressed to a Haggis. And that's a very important thing for Scottish identity because... A lot of associations with anything really that's sort of very traditionally Scottish, but haggis in particular, also kilts and bagpipes, many other things, had very negative associations and really Burns was one of the key people who turned this around because there's a lot of anti-Scottish sentiment in print, you know, after the Jacobite Risings, after all sorts of things, and that it's viewed as being something that... Lower class people, more savage people. It has all these sort of negative stereotypes. And so what Robert Burns and some others were doing was bringing an element of pride to haggis eating, saying it's a symbol of being stoic, hardworking, resilient, really turning around a lot of the kind of stereotypes that go along with haggis eating.
1: I'm sure there must have been a time where people used haggis almost like a prescription. They were just like, oh, you'll be fine. Just go and eat some haggis and drink some stout
0: 45 things lots of iron warming soothing exactly all of those things and kind of sticking for a second with this idea of the sort of association of offal, you also get this quite interesting thing where the late 1700s and into the 1800s in America, when people are establishing the United States as as a concept, there's quite a lot of real negativity towards offal, because offal is eaten obviously not just in Scotland; it's eaten kind of all over Europe, both by the more refined people and by the kind of less well-off people. But in America, there was this real association with we only eat the finest the purest the kind of unprocessed food whether that's the reality or not but a lot of the promotion is awful is old country awful is europe and it's still i think that kind of idea still kind of permeates today a bit that early pr they don't need awful they eat the best meat
1: it's a status symbol you walk into a restaurant you ask for the prime bit of steak not the haggis
0: it's it's status in terms of class and wealth but it's also just this line between where they had come from and where they are now as mm. in old country with our old country ways uh so yeah awful has a particularly european association but within europe increasingly it has a very scottish association with the haggis So fish liver oil is particularly interesting and I'm particularly interested in it because there is an Edinburgh connection. Um, But fish liver oil has been used medicinally since right back ancient Greece and and also in in Nordic countries as well. Um, So you would apply it to the skin for skin diseases, But you would also take it regularly in the way that people kind of often do now, you know, just a pill a day sort of thing. But this is slightly more disgusting because what they would do is dump all the fish innards into a barrel of seawater and then just leave it till it decays and then scoop residue off the top. And that would be their daily medicine. I love watching your face, Olivia, (laughs) when I say things like this. (laughs) but the bad stuff that you wouldn't want to eat sinks to the bottom and the oil rises to the top so it does work to separate them it's not like a soup you're not getting the other bits it wasn't necessarily cod liver it was whatever you could get your hands on um you know whatever fish was most common in whatever region you were in but you know it was used for rheumatism for rickets for tuberculosis and in, for some of these things, it would um, be beneficial. And it's only in the mid-1800s that uh, an Edinburgh physician, John Hughes Bennett, writes a text all about how beneficial cod liver oil is. And it stops being this sort of folk treatment that you would do in sort of local communities and things. And it starts becoming something more formal and people start producing it and selling it in shops. So it goes from being you know organs in a barrel to something much more proper and acceptable.
1: The idea of cod liver oil capsules or pills or... Even the bottles of like cod liver oil, that is somehow way more palatable than fish guts in a barrel. However, I do quite like the communal idea of loads of fishermen coming back from sea, gutting their fish and shoving it all in the same barrel. So there's one healthy barrel of fish guts for the whole community.
0: It's very much our 20th slash 21st century sensibilities. The actual thing that they are consuming is broadly the same. But I completely agree with you. I am also slightly squeamish about the idea of it. Rubens. I've done a nice segue there. This is kind of going back to what we were saying about Prometheus. So the kind of most famous painting of Prometheus was by Rubens, you know, the giant eagle kind of piercing the side. And Rubens is kind of early 1600s. But Rubens had another very famous painting, Christ on the Cross. And that, in a similar vein, is also very interesting because earlier depictions of the crucifixion show the spear piercing his side but going in on the left. Rubens puts it going in on the right, where the liver is. Um, and there isn't anything, you know, in, in the Bible or, or really in earlier works to suggest this. What Rubens is depicting is Christ being stabbed in the liver. And so there's a suggestion that he's sort of making a connection or, or sort of showing a similarity between Prometheus and, and Christ in his depictions.
1: It's more believable that he is doing that in the symbolism of the liver as a source, source of life and center of emotion and seat of the soul. Uh, still again, not convinced that that is in any way related to Christ in terms of regeneration. You're wrong! It's regeneration!
0: Um, <laughs> no, I, you're completely right. The, the, all the layers of meaning that go along with the liver, it would make sense for you, know, you to want Christ to be depicted as the sort of source of life and goodness and things like that. In the original Snow White tale, uh, the evil queen does not demand Snow White's heart. She demands her liver. And that is how she will kind of gain proof that that Snow White is actually dead. So again, liver as the sort of both something quite irreplaceable, but also kind of this symbolic seat of life and so on. It's the liver at the centre of the story, not the heart.
1: Sticking with artistic depictions of the liver, there are quite a few depictions of jaundice, particularly the young sick Bacchus, which is by Caravaggio. It's an early self-portrait from 1593. He painted it the year after he'd spent six months in the hospital, most likely due to acute viral hepatitis. But during that time, he would have seen other patients with liver failure as a result of cirrhosis or alcoholic hepatitis, which sort of ties back into Bacchus being the god of wine and overindulgence. And he's painted himself as quite a yellow Bacchus,
0: quite jaundiced. I don't know the painting. I will have to look it up after this. <laughs>
1: Um, there is an ancient belief that um, jaundice could be cured by looking at a bird called the golden oriole, and the disease underlying the jaundice would be mysteriously transferred to the, the bird. Alternatively, they might strap a bird to your chest to, to achieve the same thing.
0: <laughs> that seems
1: unpleasant. Yeah. What we now know from zoonosis as well, like, <laughs> it's not going to stop the disease from spreading to other people. Positive thinking.
2: Uh...
0: For our case study today, we're going to look at the history of alcohol, and more specifically, the Georgian gin-drinking craze. The gin-drinking craze of the first half of the 1700s was counterbalanced by the gin panic, a wave of public fear and moralising that swept London, where suggestions that drinking gin caused spontaneous combustion were, at least by some, taken entirely seriously. Although spirits were not new, In Britain they had previously mostly been the preserve of the wealthy, with the less well-off drinking ale and beer instead, but gin suddenly became accessible to the masses around 1700. This was primarily for political reasons. The Dutch ruler William of Orange succeeding to the British throne, hailing from a nation of heavy gin drinkers, and an excess of grain being produced in Britain which, if it wasn't going to be eaten, could certainly be drunk instead. As a result, in 1690, England passed an act for the encouraging of the distillation of spirits from corn. Anyone now had permission to make gin in exchange for a small fee, and it was made in huge amounts, in buckets and pans. The resulting gin was sold not only in alehouses, but street stalls, from house windows, and in barbers, stationers, blacksmiths, and on boats. Beer had been drunk for a long time in Britain, and there were conventions about how it was drunk. Specifically, beer was associated with men and masculinity, and with taverns and inns. Gin was new, and the new rules for this new drink took a while to be established. Often it was served in pints, because all other alcoholic drinks were served that way, so why not? Women were as likely, if not more, to drink gin as men were. Gin-drinking was also particularly concentrated on England's capital city. While gin was drunk to some extent elsewhere, by far the greatest amount was drunk in London, and the problems which resulted were particularly associated with the capital, rather than the country as a whole. Satirical prints showing the impact of this gin-drinking craze were common, the most famous of which being Gin Lane by William Hogarth, which shows drinkers pawning everything they own in order to afford more gin. The government passed a series of acts to both raise revenue from gin drinking and make it harder to access gin. The first act came into force in 1736, followed by others in 1742 and 1751. While gin drinking was taxed, and there were rewards for anyone willing to inform on any unlicensed sellers, the scale of non-compliance was too great to end it entirely. Suspected informers were ostracized, even attacked and gin was sold under code names like The Lady's Delight to hide the illicit sales. This short clip is courtesy of the Welcome Collection, and first aired on BBC Radio Sheffield in 1972.
2: Once again with us in the Walk Right In studio is Frank Roundtree, Sheffield's Health Education Officer. Frank, I was at a football match on Saturday, and uh, looking around me from the press box, I saw one or two people in the crowd, uh, well, not just in the crowd, it has to be said, in the press box as well, uh, reaching into their pockets and bringing out hip flasks and having a swig on what was, very obviously, quite a cold day. And it just went through my mind, I wonder what that dismal Jimmy, Frank Roundtree, would have to say about that. Well, I have been called a dismal, Jimmy, on many an occasion because so often it's said that the advice and the information we provide is usually discouraging people from doing things that they like doing. This isn't because uh, really I and my colleagues are dismal. If we give a piece of information or advice that uh, is pointing out the dangers of particular behaviour, it's because there really are dangers there. Now let's think about this business of cold days and hip flasks having a swig. Psychologically, one may feel a boost because alcohol is an irritant as it goes into the mouth, it burns, it goes into the stomach, it gives a burning sensation, and with it a false feeling of warmth. In point of fact, it doesn't uh, do anything to warm you at all. It can be the very reverse uh, and be extremely harmful to take alcohol in very cold conditions because it can cause a considerable loss of heat from the surface of the body and make a situation that's worse than the one that you started with. Remember too that there is are other aspects to the question of taking alcohol in a public place, whether it's spectators or people in the press box at a football match or anywhere else for that matter. Alcohol is an anesthetic, it's a narcotic drug that has a variety of effects on the body. It reduces one's ability to concentrate, to carry out fine and coordinated movement. It also reduces one's inhibitions. Think of the person who's writing or broadcasting from a football match. Even a small amount of alcohol can have an effect on his ability to do his job properly. Think of the people in the crowd who have had a drink, uh, who may drive home afterwards. Even one drink can reduce, and does reduce, one's efficiency as a driver. No matter what people say, that they think they can drive better after one or two drinks, this just isn't true. The most minute amount of alcohol has an effect on everyone, in reducing their efficiency, in reducing their ability to control. Remember, too, that we do have a a rather unusual modern problem with crowds where occasionally things get out of hand. Uh, A feeling begins to sweep through a section of a crowd, their inhibitions go, and we may get uh, antisocial, even violent behavior taking place. Now, someone who, under normal circumstances, would be a perfectly reasonable individual, can be affected by this uh, mob psychology. If they've had a drink, they may well be more affected than under other circumstances. Their inhibitions may go, and they may well finish up instead of having had a happy day out, a very unpleasant day out. Alcohol has its uses, but it has its dangers as well. It should be used in the right place, at the right time, and in the right quantity.
0: Welcome to Recipes of Yore. going to explore some unusual medical recipes from the past. The way in which the word recipes was used in the past is a bit different from how it's used today, so it could mean recipes for cooking, for medicine, or even recipes for cleaning products or cosmetics. Very few of them were treatments we would recognize in the 21st century, and certainly none of these should be tried at home. While there were a lot of recipes to treat the liver, the actual disease they were designed to treat was often quite vague an obstruction of the liver, a stoppage of the liver, a distemper of the liver, and even the evil state of the liver. The treatment for a liver disordered was quite mild. you must drink tea for six days, about five cupful, very strong, per day. For the distemper of the liver, quote, conserve of roses mixed with spring water, and a bath of warm water, used often doth more powerfully and profitably cool and moisten the body than any other remedy, especially in lean folks. Which all sounds fairly pleasant, except, quote, If the disease continue, open him with horse leeches. For stoppage of the liver, quote, Drink ordinary water and small wine, wherein steel hath been infused. Other recipes included drinking turpentine mixed with wine, an ointment made from bitter almonds, drinking a mix of juniper berries and cinnamon water, laying radishes on the navel and, quote, a toad cut through the belly, half a dram of the powder of a toad dried in the oven and then drunk in wine or one grain of arsenic drunk in water. The treatment for jaundice was, quote, Take an old piece of rusty iron, be it a horseshoe or anything else. Lay it in the fire till it be red hot. Then take it out of the fire and let the patient make water upon it and take the fume thereof at his nose and mouth. Using this three days together and it will cure him. And interestingly, the text tailor's Ready Doctor contains a recipe for drunkenness. Quote, Wormwood will hinder one from being too drunk, and if the patient has drunk too much, let him drink about a muchkin or English pint of said juice. It will instantly cause him throw up, and he will soon be whole, otherwise make use of a good quantity of butter or fat meat before drinking, preserves one wonderfully." Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at rcpeheritage, and we have a Just Giving page, rcpeheritage, linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.